Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you calling <laughs> And welcome to this episode of Sustain Open Source Design. I am your host, Justin Flory, here with my co-host, Richard Latower. Hello. And we are talking, as usual, about the intersections of open source and design. Why we do what we do, what we do, and what we are all trying to figure out in this space working here together. Today, I'm super happy to introduce our guest, Django Skorupa, calling in from Western Massachusetts in the United States. Say hello, Django. How's it going, everybody? So today, a little bit of introduction for Django. He's recently graduated from the Rochester Institute of Technology with a degree in industrial designer. He's now working as a UI UX designer for the internal team at the Open at RIT Academic Open Source Program Office, or OSPO. So he had kind of an interesting leap into the design and open source UX space, starting from uh, more of a ergonomic physical product design and looking more at the industrial side of design and then making this interesting jump and transition into the open source side of things with his work at Open at RIT. So with that, I think that's actually my first question is I'm really curious is what kind of a leap that is to go from the industrial side, which is really the antithesis of open source into this much more collaborative or interactive way of working in the open source side of things. So yeah, that's a really great question. When it comes to design as a mental practice and as a theoretical practice, I think that industrial design and UI UX design in the open source world are very similar with the exceptions of their actual hard and soft skills. So while I would be designing in the industrial design world, ergonomics and furniture, which was the track that I was on before, you may remember a bit of an unpleasantness happening around March, 2020, and things really changing in our world after that point, the general thought process behind that I've always brought to the design world has never changed. So when I first decided back in the beginning of 2019 that I wasn't prepared to graduate, I decided to take a whole year off and work in the industry. That was a really great opportunity that RIT affords is that we're able to register a co-op, a cooperative education, which is basically a full paid internship as a class and not have to worry about our student loans coming due, not have to worry about changing enrollment status and everything. You're still a full-time student, but you were a student at a company. And so I decided to take some time off and work in the model-making field. That's where I really wanted to go at that point in time in my life. I really wanted to work with my hands. I really wanted to work with my hands in a way that would benefit other people. And so I took a job at a medical research and development company. Really phenomenal. And they do incredible work there. And while I was there, I learned a lot of things. Number one being, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I would come home every day, like caked in polane tea paint, which is like car paint. 
and it's a sensitizer. It starts off and you don't have any reactions to it. And then after a couple of years of being exposed to it, it just is brutal to your body. It can cause all sorts of different things from itching to anaphylaxis to respiratory failure. It's made with isocyanates and it's really not great for the human body when it's in its pre-cure form. And I thought about that pretty much every night as I was going to bed. And I realized that while sitting at a computer was the antithesis of working with my hands, it was also something that I really loved. And so my next internship, my next co-op, which was actually back at RIT as a technical specialist and like design and fabrication specialist at the RIT tech crew, I really started thinking about other ways that I wanted to contribute to the design world. And I started thinking about how I could contribute in the same way that I was contributing at this medical research company as a digital designer in some way. And then something happened. In March of 2020, the whole world shut down and kind of collectively lost our mind for a little while. And we're still living with those things now. But what happened after my boss gave me my first ever paid week off, I'd never had something like that before, but he's like, just go chill out, stay home. Don't go do anything. We're going to figure out how to do this because you're guaranteed, you're contracted, you're guaranteed 40 hours a week until May. And we're not sure how to make that happen for you because you were our physical fabricator. And at that point, I had been training people on power tools for a while. Like I'd been like the person who was running the shop trainings and like helping facilitate that for other people. And so I had seen the shortcomings of that. And I proposed to them that instead of continuing as a physical fabricator, that I could move towards being a digital designer and content developer for RIT Tech Crew. And so I started from the ground up, rebuilding their training manuals and everything in the digital sector. And that was the first time I'd ever done anything like that on the large scale that I did. I mean, I made several full training manuals, like researched them, developed them from the ground up, everything from the graphic layouts to the copywriting for all of our safety posters and all of our individual pamphlets. I made a couple of different handouts for everything. And I loved it so much. It was the most fun because I was helping people feel more at home in the shop. I was helping people feel more welcome and safe and protected. And I was also doing it in a field that I really loved. And so there was this moment when I was coming back to RIT after all of that, and I was starting to have to work on my capstone project when I realized I didn't want to do physical product design. That was it. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something digital. I'm in a physical major. What the hell do I do now? So my entire capstone was developing an educational system for teaching children how to cook from home. And that was the whole concept. So I did all of the stationary design for that. I did the instruction manual design. I did the box design. I did all of the graphic design for like stickers and other things that came with it. And I researched different easy recipes different methods of like ergonomically developing tools. It was this whole friggin' thing. And that really put me into the content development world. And now I'm here. So that's the short story long. Now, and I think that kind of that connection piece that you mentioned about helping people through this mentorship and guidance, and then making that jump from the physical project design into that digital design, it only makes sense that open source is kind of that natural intersection because it's so much focused on the people and the human centeredness, but in all of the technology and, and pieces of which we work. 
But that actually brings me into this next piece is we have a lot of interesting topics for today's podcast, ranging from uh, how does bad design keep your community stagnated? Why are developers in the open source community separated so much? And a few other things. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at Open at RAT right now? So that was a wonderful thing that I kind of fell into. A, a dear friend of mine, Julia, who really helped me graduate by giving me all sorts of great critique and help on my projects and my capstone. She said, hey, I've been working for this company for the better part of a year now. You should definitely just apply to this role. So I did. And Mike and I really fell in. And now we're, we're doing great work together. But so Open at RIT is an academic OSPO, Open Source Programs Office, at the Rochester Institute of Technology, which is a mouthful. So what we do is support open source in the academic community at the university in its entirety. So we provide best practices, write-ups. We don't write policy. That's very difficult to do on an academic scale, but we provide best practices. We provide support to professors who are looking to pursue tenure and want to use open source work that they've done as part of their juried work for tenure. We support students. We have the very first open source minor anywhere in the United States. So you can actually minor in open source in general, in like open source work. And we also connect students with positions in open work. So either it's through cooperative education or networking with humanitarian NGOs, and that's through our Libre Corps group. What I do there and what I was hired to do is content development. So they saw what I did with RIT Tech Crew with the development of their manuals and systems and asked me to do the same for an open source programs office playbook for their consulting and fellowship. As part of an extremely generous grant from the Sloan Foundation, we can work with a series of professors per year to help them grow and support their open source communities to support their own open source projects. And so when we are consulting in that field, there's a lot of different questions we ask, a lot of different processes that we go through to take a project from hey, it's not really growing as I thought it would to here are the actual problems that we need to develop. So they hired me on to research all of that. So I sat down with every person at OpenRIT and interviewed them to ask them like what they did, what their processes were, how they worked with clients, how they thought about clients. And this was a great kind of double whammy because on the one hand, I was learning about how we did things there. And on the other hand, I was learning about open source in general, because this is the first time I'd ever worked in the open source world at all. And so I took copious notes and summarized it down into three basic steps. You know, we have our initial consultation where we like determine what an actual project is about. We then determine stakeholders and effectability. So who is impacted by each of the projects that we do and who is impacted by changes that need to happen in the project. So once we can identify our stakeholders, we detail like contributor pathways and we try and identify through those contributor pathways what isn't happening. So when we identify that this contributor is doing X, Y, and then is stopping before Z, we can look at that and we can say, okay, so what's keeping them from 
properly networking within the open source community? What's keeping them from properly onboarding into the open source community? What's keeping them from taking on additional responsibilities? So these are all areas that we would identify there and then try and propose either improved systems or changing things altogether. And then in that last step, we just identify how we can help. We look through like project documentation. We provide support for developing community landing pages. We provide systems for providing community feedback and then like help them develop outreach materials. And so through that whole process, which I've just outlined there, like we identify all of that. And then our end goal is to provide enough documentation for all of that that we can be fully transparent and other people can do the same thing that we're doing in other areas, like other academic worlds. So, you know, maybe someone in Louisiana is trying to do the same thing at their college or someone in California is trying to do the same thing at their college or someone in Great Britain, et cetera. And and so they can look at what we're doing and use that as a template to avoid our initial mistakes. So... OpenLRIT wouldn't exist without Stephen Jacobs. Stephen Jacobs is the professor who basically runs OpenLRIT and has been pushing for it for years and years. And I really like his attitude towards open source and towards all the work he's doing, which is just share everything all the time. If someone's asked a question, hey, here's what we've done. Here's how you can read what we've done and you can do the same thing or do it better. And please do it better because we mess up a lot, but we're trying really hard. And it works really well. And it sounds like you're another one of the acolytes of this sort of like just do everything in the open and then just throw it out there. Here's a run book, run with it. I really like that. And I think it matches well with open source in general. One of the questions I have for you is open to the RIT is an OSPO. It's an open source program office. That means its main function is to be helping out other open source projects. What I'm curious is you've talked a bit about how you, your capstone project was teaching kids how to cook. I'm curious, what open source kitchens do you yourself play in? Do you do open source on your own? And how has that informed your own experience of also working with the OSPO? That's a great question because as I touched on at the beginning there, I've never worked in the open source world. Up until right now, up until working for Open at RIT, I had never really understood what open source was. I had taken great advantage of it. And I think we'll cover it a little bit in Spotlight, a couple of the things that I want to talk about there. But I had taken great advantage of it and I had even unknowingly contributed to it. But I'd say that my first real contribution at all to the open source community was through Open and RIT. I have always had this attitude towards data in the great World Wide Web. If it can be provided for free, you should be able to access it for free. Be that anything from the majority share of media to books to information, I think it always should be accessible in a you know pay what you can sort of way. Everything that I've learned, or not everything, because I do have, I did go to college, but a majority of what I've learned has come from the extremely wonderful people who are putting up things on YouTube just to like show people how this program works or people who are uploading free project documentation and all of these things, you know, I interact with all of that and I try and help support it as much as I can. And that's, I think, where the creative sphere intersects the most with open source is that without open source, people would not know how to use pretty much any of these programs because all these paid things cost so much money. 
So I think what's interesting, just as a follow-up to that, Stephen Jacobs, again, it's really into open being open, not just open source. And it sounds like what you're describing is like the entirety of open ideology, open data, open hardware. is something you'd probably be really interested in if you went back to it. Certainly open in general, like open plans. I'm trying to figure out like, how do you understand open source as being different from open asterisks? Do you see them as being any different at all? Do you see the open source world as just being a subset of open asterisks? Or like, do you see the open knowledge movement as being different? I'm curious if you have any demarcations between them for you, or is everything for you kind of, well, I just want to work in the open and that's just where I work now. Justin Flory, could you, could you help me make that more succinct? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I mean, I think just to build on that, it's kind of this question of the traditional sense of open source being tied historically to software. And that's what gets a lot of the focus. But as we're seeing this trend now, just as open at RIT defines open works, which is not just software, but data and content and best practices and all these other kinds of things, creative works in general. If I'm understanding your question right, Richard, it's just, is that traditional open source software mentality, is it different? Is it compatible with, is it the same? Is it different from this way of understanding working open in this more broad sense as we have it today? I think that I've always seen open source in as much as I can say I've always seen it, as I don't think I've had much of a thought about open source, particularly compared with open work as a subsection of open asterisks. I mean, open source might've been and really is where this whole mentality and philosophy came from. The early phases of open source technology just being this open intellectuality coupled with actual real open source code. But I think that as we move forward in the whole world, open in general is a humanitarian choice because it is a support for people who cannot or don't want to engage with the more closed forms of education, the more closed forms of thinking, the more closed forms of interaction. I think that open in general is a choice for humanity. And as a follow-up to that, one of those questions that, that we were thinking about in prep for this episode is that you wrote like, well, why is this thing that seems so naturally beneficial to, to people and from a humanitarian perspective, why are the developers and the designers kept so separate from each other in the open source space. Obviously, there's a little bit of a historical piece there, but even today where it seems like those things would fit together more nicely, why do you see that separation as being there? I couldn't tell you. To me, it feels so natural to want to be transparent with information, to be transparent with the desire for collaboration. I think that Humanity in general wants to collaborate. I think that's like what we want to do. But there is this sense of tribalism, like especially that I noticed in design program where collaboration is so discouraged. Even mentorship is hard to find because of the cutthroat nature of the industry. So in the design world, for the most part, trying to find positions as an industrial designer can be very, very, very difficult. Because even messaging, like, like trying to reach out to people saying like, hey, I'm looking for like a portfolio review. I'm looking for support. I'm looking for maybe just like growing my contacts. If they think that you're looking for a position, they could be a, a senior designer. If they think that you're looking for a position, you're going to get ghosted. 
almost all of the time. Or they'll just literally, even if you're asking for like connections, they'll just refer you to hiring. Like you'll get an email saying, oh no, we're not hiring at this time. Please, you know, reach out to our, our HR executive. And so there's this mentality of, I cannot help this person because they might take my job, which is insane. I saw a quote a while ago that just says, should more millennials be elected to hold public office? And the reply was like, given my understanding of linear time, I'm not entirely sure how that should not happen. And in the design world, it can get so overcrowded that I feel like people are unwilling to collaborate. Now, where that is not true, actually, is the UI UX field in that I have never met a group of people more willing to collaborate and more willing to share information and more willing to you know, work in the open source. Like coming from a philosophy that says like, I need to design my packaging so that it looks like no one else's packaging and screw them if they can't get into it. And then going into a world where like the whole idea of UI UX is making things more accessible for broader amounts of people. You know, I think that's a really gross summary there, but it's working in the accessibility field. It's working in improving experience. And all these people are more than happy to help. You know, I changed my title when I was hired on as a UI UX person from you know, strategic designer to UI UX. And it was like the world immediately got brighter and more friendly. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was very strange. And I had never really encountered that before coming from a hard physical product design. Thinking about how this UI UX background has a much more highly collaborative nature and you're encouraged to work together with people. I noticed on that line last month at the Open Source Initiatives Practical Open Source Information event that you and Assistant Director at Open NRAT, Mike Nolan, gave a talk together about your work and what you've been doing, working with the different communities inside of RIT and how you've been helping educate them on these things around what it means to be a maintainer, or how to govern contributions, and how the nature of sharing can fundamentally change the way you approach the creation of work. So I was a little biased because I was there at that talk, and I thought it was a really awesome session that both of you gave. But my question, so looking at that, as you're going out and working with these different sub-communities around the university, and you're in one way teaching them about these things, what kind of things did you learn from your peers and other communities that you were working with while you were going and playing this teaching role? I think kind of playing on that, I've often found that when you are a mentor, you play that teaching role. Sometimes there's a lot of things that you unexpectedly will learn from the people you're mentoring. So I'm just curious, what things surprised you when you were going out and working across these different communities and peers? What did you learn? And just to clarify a little bit about my role, I'm not teaching so much as I am really wonderfully watching everyone else teach. I'm watching our, you know, incredible client-facing UI UX designers, Rahul and Urvashi, interact with our clients and like help them and provide them with advice. And most importantly, ask a whole bunch of questions and just questions which I have shamelessly stolen several times in job interviews. Thank you, Rahul. But I think just in general, flexibility is really important and understanding that you are not the expert in their field has been the most important thing to learn is that anytime you're engaging with a client, anytime you're engaging with one of these professors, I feel like there's a lot of sensitivity to someone who is a tenured professor, someone who is very intelligent, and then telling them very politely that maybe this direction that they are thinking that is the best direction to move in is maybe not 
the way that they need to do it. I can think of one example where we were speaking to someone and we asked, so how would I learn how to use this? And the person responded, well, you should know how to do it if you're getting onboarded into the community. And we said, so where is it in the documentation? And they said, oh, it's not in the documentation. Now there's a key point there because it's assuming that this knowledge has to be held in order to get into this position is the same thing that I've seen in some job searches where when you're applying for a senior position, it's actually assumed that you'll know less than when you're applying for an associate position. And they, they've even said this um, before. Well, well, we'll teach you. If you don't know this part, we'll teach you. If you don't know this part, we'll teach you. We just assume that you're going to be an expert in blank. And the same thing goes for working with professors where they are 100% an expert in their field and we are doing our damnedest to be an expert in ours. And when we work with them and we try and support them, we have to be very sensitive to not provide information or not try to provide incorrect information in their own field, but say, hey, look, we understand you're not a UX designer. There's a lot of steps here that seem like they make sense and seem like every single one is necessary. But how many people use out of these like series of like binary options, how many people click option two? Oh, well, that's just there just in case this one person sends on. Well, okay. So if you've got 30 people, maybe we don't need option two. And an outlier can contact the program runners. Or maybe these people aren't emailing your private email or you're not seeing them because you've got so many other private emails. Maybe we can set up another email box for all of these specific emails, or we can have someone else handle these things. So much of it is a customer service mentality as well. These are clients. These are people who are looking to learn and you have to treat them like that. As a UX designer, I understand where you're coming from there. One of the questions that I keep coming back to is that you seem calm, collected, and informed. Which is great. That's how we all want to appear on a podcast. And it's wonderful. What I'm curious about, Django, is what are you struggling with that you're trying to learn? Like, what's hard for you right now in design and open source? Because I feel like that's where the edges start showing on, like, how great open source is. It's the best. But, like, what's difficult? But let's talk about the things, the problems that I've had in the last week. So, first of all, Adobe. Love them and hate them. I can't get away from them. Holy cow, those sons of guns. So they make everything better and harder at the same time. I pay my subscription to the Creative Cloud. I was just using that earlier today to work on some cookie label designs for mothers for her Christmas cookies. But I was up in there using all the wonderful tools that I pay for that are behind a paywall that have paid licensing for all of those things. And when you are working in the open world, you have none of that. Really, if you want to be truly open, if you want to be true to all of that sort of thing. And so working within the branding guidelines of the Rochester Institute of Technology, which is designed assuming that you'll be using the Microsoft Office suite and using Adobe products and using Adobe fonts and then doing none of that is very interestingly difficult. One of our designers, Chris Ferentz, has been doing great work in rebuilding all of RIT's branding PowerPoint templates into Google Slides so that we have those that we can access and we can use. And of course, we have had to find new typefaces because RIT says, oh, well, if you can't use Neuhaus Grotesque, which is a family with 
dozens of different fonts within it. So, you know, you've got wonderful variety of like obliques and Romans and it's marvelous. Well, you can use Arial, which has four. So you try and develop like a really nice text hierarchy and you've got all these really wonderful different subheader types and emphasis texts. You don't have to rely on the automatic italics look and you can bold things really nicely in ways that's like softer bolding, more intense bolding. You do all these different things. And then you're dealing with your full stack developer who says, we have Arial. And you go, okay, so what do we have? And they go thin and not. You go, okay. So that's been my struggle for the last week and a half. Well, for the last three weeks and a half. And we have been moving into the Roboto world, which has been wonderful. That's a really nice equivalent to Helvetica, which Neuhaus Grotesque is, of course, another Helvetica variant. And Roboto has a much wider set of fonts within it. So we've been using that a little bit more. But that's been the biggest struggle is using open things, like trying to make everything open when you are a creative and a lot of your tools are not open. And even if I wanted to be more open with a lot of my software, well, I'd have to have a Mac. And well, now I have to get a Mac and I have to buy into that ecosystem. It's remarkably frustrating. Word. Thank you. I agree. That is a common space for Twitch designers, particularly for open source designers. Trying to do everything open source is actually like physically impossible. You can get pretty close. I mean, Karen Sandler does really good work to make sure you can as close as possible. And I know, I think both of you are using Linux, so kudos. I'm afraid to say I'm using Windows, but, you know, I play video games, so I need to have a Windows computer. You can't do that on Linux. Listeners, I wish you could see Justin Florey's self-satisfied smugness right now, because he's just smiling. being like, yeah, I'm the one guy. I'm doing this right. Hey, but my Linux distribution is a digital public good, so I'll take that. That is fair. Cool. All right. So fonts are difficult. I agree with you. Fonts are difficult. And it's difficult to try to figure out how to have design schemes that work across distros, across labs. That's one of the reasons why we do things like run books to make it easier. And you say, hey, let's not go down this road again. Everyone just go with Comic Sans and we'll call it a day. So how are you teaching the next generation of designers at RIT? Have you started teaching actual designers yet? Like, have you started passing on your knowledge to other students? I have not started teaching designers for the most part. Like I work with a couple of designers, but it's very much a partnership and not a mentorship. We all teach each other. We all learn from each other. At least that's the hope and the goal. In the future, I think actually once I've worked in the industry for a while, I hope to return to teaching. But I think that, and I think that this is the sort of thing that you do for approximately 80 years and then you die is you say, I don't think I know enough yet. I'd like to learn a bit more. And then I can start teaching. And then at a certain point you pass on. And I would like to start teaching before that point in my life or in my death. And until then, I think I'm just going to keep learning. And so right now I don't teach much, but I do try as hard as I can to learn collaboratively. One of the things that's difficult is that teaching is not only, well, here's how you download the Adobe suite. And here's a set up Roboto. And that's definitely part of it, but also the design is thinking. So it's a lot more than just saying, follow this thing and here we go. It's more about how you think about your clients or users or community or fellows or comrades or what have you. Do you think that's an accurate assessment of design? Is there anything else you would add when you think about how you pass design on to others in itself? I think that design is 
firmly 50-50 between skill and theory. So much of design is learning how to think about what you're doing. And most importantly, it's learning how to think about how other people are interacting with what you're doing. So I don't really teach very often, but especially during critique, when I was still a student, so much of what myself and several of my colleagues would try and stress is think about who you're designing for. Think about what you're designing for. Think about why does this thing need to exist? And while, oh, this is a cool thing, I might as, I want it, I might as well make it, is a great reason to make something. It's not always a great reason to design something. Because design and making, while extremely similar and both parts of a process, are not the same thing. To design is to think about the broader scope of why something happens. Design is so much theory and so much consideration on a massive scale. And it needs to be a proper balance between pragmatism and holistic view. And then it's also knowing uh, what fonts fit together, you know, because that's also really important because it's not just thinking about holistics. Like I love to think about holistics, but it's also do these two colors clash? Do they work together to be accessible? Did you know that RIT's favorite two colors don't actually look good together from an accessible point of view? Like those two colors don't have enough contrast between the two of them to allow for people with bad eyesight to read them very effectively. Because I didn't know that until our full stack developer pointed that one out to me. And so design exists at the intersection of the pragmatic and the holistic. And that's, I think, what I've always tried to think about. Well, we're getting close to the the end of time here. I just want to have one last final question before we move on to the spotlight for this episode. But we talked a lot about kind of that role of teaching and Although that mentorship side, one thing that in the sustain OSS design and UX working group, one topic that comes up a good bit there is we talk about that being in that position of a newcomer to the open source space and trying to find that entry point into the open source space as a designer. So one of the questions that we had prepped in advance for this one was thinking about, well, how can designers actually find roles or get involved in the open source community? If you had a a call to action or a quick pointer for someone who was maybe just trying to figure that out in their journey of making their first steps into open source, what kind of resources or places would you point them? I think what's actually been the best for me, and I've only hit this very recently. So this is like, this is a new hot tip, is find groups on places like LinkedIn. Find a role that you'd like to pursue, either in the open source community or not, and find a group of people who are doing it better than you and learn from them. If you want to get into the open source community, find people who are doing that role at a larger company like Red Hat, to name one, and try and reach out to them. I I found that the majority of, of open source people are a little bit more interested in talking to new people than individuals who are not really in the open source community. And try and find places that are very transparent about their projects. The enemy of education is unfortunately the non-disclosure agreement. I recently had a meeting with someone who is interested in filling a role and she couldn't tell me anything about the role. I said, well, walk me through like a a broad day. And she's like, well, you would be 
theorizing about content structure and finding ways to put things into that structure, which could be UI UX or it could be baking, you know, like realistically speaking, no shade to them. Like this is, that's what they have to talk about due to contracts, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that's in my portfolio that can't be disclosed because it's property of the United States government. But try and find places that are really transparent. Try and find places that are into talking about what they do and try and find places that go on podcasts and talk about what they do. And then find those people and pick their brains and steal as much information as you possibly can from a conversation with them and write all of it down. Well, that's one of the reasons why we have some of our super editors who will help get some of this content and info into the show notes for today. But that's about brings us to the end of time. So before we jump to Spotlight for this episode, Django, can you tell us a little bit on where that we can find you on the internets and where we can keep up with some of what you're up to? For the most part, you can find me on Instagram at Django Skirupa Design. And you can also find me sometimes on LinkedIn and at the encouragement of Mike Nolan, I have recently made a Twitter and I'm working on figuring out how that works. And at some point, probably by the time this episode goes up, I will remember what my handle is. (laughs) Well, with that, we can go ahead and jump into the project spotlight. So I'll go ahead and kick it off for this series. I put in for the Fedora Badges project. Fedora Badges is an open design project that's used in the Fedora Linux community. My bias as a Fedora Linux user, but it's this really interesting community tool that people use to earn different virtual badges for doing different kinds of contributions or participating in community events. And I think it's really remarkable because not only is it this fun kind of gamified way of contributing, but all these different aspects of it are completely open, both on the software side with the tech and the, the front end, back end pieces, but also in the design process. All of the badges are designed according to a common set of brand guidelines. There's different kinds of themes and, and fonts and different kinds of requirements that are used in all the design of the badges. And so I think it's a really good example of a project that models the open source software piece really well with the open source design piece. I'll throw it to Richard. Yeah, my spotlight today is for someone who's been in the sustained space for a while, done a lot of stuff, headed up a few working groups, recently moved from America to another country where they have been super busy doing other cool stuff, mostly for the UN, building digital public goods and making sure that makes a lot of sense in the world. We had them on the Sustain podcast, which is the sister podcast. This one on episode 21. If you want to learn more about how Minecraft leads to people becoming open source developers and designers is an interesting developer in their own right. And also is fascinatingly really, really good at acting like they're 30 years older than they are. I'm talking, of course, about Justin Flory. I bring up Justin Flory today even though he's on this podcast, because I think this is going to be his last podcast as an official host. Look, he may come back now and then. Let's hope, knock on wood, as needed. But Justin is moving on to do other volunteer things. And I just want to say thank you for the amount of time he's given over the years to sustain. And uh, yeah, Justin Flory is definitely my spotlight today. Someone who needs a bit more praise than he gets. You're too kind, Richard. And I would be biased without saying my, my connection to open RAT2 as a board member, as part of my journey has taken me from all those early days in Sustain where I was working on at LibreCorps at RAT and heading up those working groups and doing all that work too. So I appreciate the spotlight. 
I have two short ones because I will be completely honest, I would not have graduated without either of them. So what got me at the very, very beginning of my first foray ever into graphic design when I was just a wee baron in high school was the League of Movable Type. That is the open source type foundry that produces a whole bunch of really phenomenal typefaces that are fully available for commercial and personal use. You can download them just straight off their website and they do really great work there. And then unsplash.org. So when I was early on in my senior year, I was really confused as to how all of these people were making really great, incredible presentations in the very beginning of a design discussion with really incredible icons and remarkable layouts and really professional looking stock images. And yet all of it was done in a week. Meanwhile, I'm out here with a camera trying to make my own stock photos. I'm doing my own icons and you know I'm getting my own fonts off of everything. And it looks pretty good, but it wasn't perfect. And I was talking to Julia, who actually recommended this job to me. And Julia said, have you ever heard of unsplash.com? And I went, no, what the hell's that? That's uh, open source stock photos. Just go use those. They're free to license. Get anything. Go use them for everything. I mean, that just blew my mind that <laughs> that all, this resource that I would have benefited from for the last five years was out there, was free to use and wasn't showing up for whatever reason. Anytime I Googled like free to use stock photos, anytime you Google like open licensable stock photos, it didn't show up. And now that I'm on there, and considering contributing my array of photos that I've used in the past now to that site, it's phenomenal. It distinctly helped my capstone project to have images that I didn't have to worry about finding a really good photographer to work with to get them, but I could use them as just like example of stock photos, plug and play. They're stock photos and they're open source and it's great. So those two really They're some of the few open source design resources that I feel like more people deserve to know about. I would be wrong if I haven't used Unsplash many times over the years as well. All the times. Design. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode for this time. And as always, the Sustain Open Source Design Podcast. You can find us online at sosdesign.sustainoss.org. And until the next time.